Bill Parker is going to come pray for me. Appreciate you, sir. You're very handsome. Gracious God, we collectively lift up Paul each Sunday as, as uh, he prepares to preach. So I pray that you'll bless him today. God, that you would use this man in very special ways to touch us today as only you can. Give him courage, give him strength, give him wisdom. God, help him to clarify things that are difficult for us to understand about your word. This is a tough scripture, God, but he has such a good way of making it easy for us to see. So I pray that you'll bless him today. Use him in mighty ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Got, got a couple things to tell you before we go, before we continue, continue on. Number one, uh, this weekend, Corinth hosted their, I guess this is the 19th Disciple Now that we've ever done. Uh, the 19th Disciple Now 2019. So uh, we had, I don't know, about 100 people participating. So some of them are sitting over here. Some of them left because their parents were in the 830 service. Um, we had a lot of leaders, a lot of host homes. And so leaders and host homes, thank you so much. Um, especially also want to give a big shout out to Angie Burnham. Hopefully she's somewhere on our beach right now. Yeah, she is, she's not here. She's like, I'm on a beach. She's she, she gone. Um, so incredible job. Wonderful. Uh, thank you for praying us down off the mountain last night. Uh, was one of those days where like you couldn't see 30 feet in front of you coming down 321. So thank you for that. Secondly, uh, we have a brand new sound system today. I don't know if it, you can tell the difference in how it sounds. Uh, these are subwoofers that are also the size of a small Volkswagen right here. Um, but uh, a lot of people have kind of worked hard all week. So I definitely want to give a shout out to Jacob back there from AE Global, and then our own Reagan has been back there, so they've been working hard. And so, and and then our band guys, our band came in with a brand new sound system, never having played on it before, with brand new monitors, with these things that you can actually launch the space shuttle from right here. Um, we accidentally launched it. Um, we're hoping that come back. But um, so they were troopers this morning, never having done that. Uh, we had some of even some of our youth, uh, Chase and Emily, were up here. So please, uh, if you see them, love on them, give them the flu. Um, something, but they are, they are amazing, and we're so thankful for them. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7, and this is verses 1 through 6. Matthew 7, 1 through 6. This is the fourth sermon in the series of the Sermon on the Mount. And it starts like this. Stop judging others, and you will not be judged. For others will treat you as you treat them. Whatever measure you use in judging others, it will be used to measure how you are judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite! First get rid of the log in your own eye, and then perhaps you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't give what is holy to unholy people. Don't give pearls to swine. They will trample the pearls and then turn and attack you. Now let's talk about people that I hate. I hate people that don't take their shopping cart back. I hate you. Whoever you are, if you know who you are out there, just nod your head and look away in shame. But secretly, you are my least favorite people in the world. And I have never actually confronted one of you. And I hope one day after you tell the story, I never will. But last week, I went to our wonderful Lowe's supermarket in in Mountain View, and I'm walking in. And it is a beautiful day. It's not rainy. You know, there's no hurricanes or all that kind of stuff. And I'm, as I'm walking in the door, I'm looking. And over on the side of my vision, I see someone getting into their car. And, they're, and, you, know what's, and you know how it goes. Is you see the last, like, six feet of the 
shoot a shopping cart roll, right? You see the thing and then hit the curb and then stop. And I'm like, today's the day. Today's the day that you're going to feel the wrath of what it's like to be the person that hates shopping cart levers. And so I start walking over that direction. And as I'm walking over that direction, I am thinking of all these wonderful things to say. Like, what? that last 15 feet was killer, right? You couldn't do it. Or like, you know, how's that polio? Heard we cured it, you know, or whatever like that. Or looking in, you better be a quadriplegic. You know, I had all these things that I was going to say. And as I'm getting there, I actually look, and the woman is holding on to the handle, trying to get herself in the car, obviously in pain, obviously in discomfort. And Jesus just leaned over me and went, shh. And I grabbed a hold of that, hold of that shopping cart, and I turned to her, feeling like the biggest idiot. And I was like, can I take this back for you? She was like, sure, that's so sweet. And I was like, if you only knew my heart. <laughs> And I took it back. And how wrong are we so often in the judging part of what we do? But this text is not simple. It, it requires us to go deeper. Christians, we don't check our brains at the door when we come to church, and we don't check our brains when we read the Bible. And so when we got to this text, I want to tell you something about this text. This text is non-believer's favorite verse in the Bible. This text is the atheist number one verse in the Bible. And matter of fact, it's so famous for them, they even know it in the King James. Like, you start talking to someone, and they're like, judge not, lest ye be judged. And I'm like, first of all, King James, really? Second of all, now we're taking the Bible literally? You know? But what do we do with that? What do we do with that? What is this verse saying? And so let's talk about this, because I want to kind of give you some ground rules for this. The Bible is very consistent when it defines love. Same thing from cover to cover. Very consistent when it defines hope. When it defines hope, salvation, justice, very consistent when it defines God's mercy and his grace. But the Bible seems to be varied when it is talking about judgment. Because depending on whether you're listening to what Jesus says at one time and what Jesus says at another time, depending on what Paul says at one time or another time, Peter, James, you're going to hear things that seem to kind of go in a spectrum of this judging and what that looks like. And you're going to hear don't, but then you're going to hear do. And then you, you know, you're going to hear like, and especially do, and why aren't you? And you kind of go, well, what? Golly, you know, and so I just want to say a couple things right off the bat. First of all, this is a text for the church. This is not a text for us to go stand on the street corner and yell at people and tell them that we think that they are going to perish in darkness for all eternity. This is a verse for, these are verses for Christian to Christian. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is about disciples, and it's about discipleship. So this is a Christian to Christian. This is not a Christian to the world. Of course, we're supposed to judge what the world, what the world does. Secondly, that leads me into the second part, which is we judge all the time. We judge all the time. You live with judging all the time. The reason you bought a Pontiac and not a Honda was because you made a judgment. The reason why you went to Bojangles and not Chick-fil-A is because you made a judgment. You know, the reason why you cheer for this team and not that team is you made a judgment. You make, we and I make judgments all the time. It's what our life is based on. We make judgments. And so this text is actually about not just not judging, but when you judge, judge correctly. And then the third thing is this text is also about self-judgment, self-discernment, by not my own standards, but by God's standards. I'm going to do some self-examination, some self-judgment. This is that plank removal from your eye. Not so that I can continue judging other people, but to self-judge so that I can help other people. And so if we jump right into the text, let's go right there to verse 1. Remember, it's non-Christians' favorite verse in the Bible. They love it. They've memorized it. They don't know anything else, but they know this verse. And they love to throw it back at you. What do you say? All right, so let's stop it. Verse 1. The very first thing Jesus says is stop, don't. 
You know, so he just kind of, just simple, you know. This is not like red light, green light, where you can kind of go a little bit. He just says, stop. So then the word he uses in Greek is the word for judging is krino. And it's actually purposely a very broad, defined word. It truly is the kind of word that can mean, I'm going to judge between this in a personal way. I'm going to judge between this in a corporate way. We're going to judge about this in a, in a family matter. And it means to divide, to take one and separate it from the other. Isn't that kind of what you do when you judge? You're, you're dividing. And so it's a very common word that he uses, but then he helps you zero in on what he's talking about by how he expounds on it. And so it is here, and this is what we're going to keep talking about, This word to judge means having an unfair, critical attitude towards others. And specifically, we're talking about Christians, Christian to Christian. And some of y'all are like, I hate those people too. I am one, so you hate me. So that's fine. I I know I am. I'm working on it. But this unfair, critical attitude about how we judge. And so the second one, the second verse is actually an echo of verse 12. What's verse 12? Verse 12 is the verse that your mom made you write down 10 times after you slapped your brother. Do unto others as you would like to have them do unto you. You know that. It's the golden rule. So verse 2 is an echo of verse 12. And it is also paralleled in Luke chapter 6, 37 through 38, if you want to look that up. And what he's saying is the type and the measurement, the type and the measurement of the judgment that you give will be revisited upon you. How you treat other Christians, how you judge them, how you look look upon their lives, that same way will be used unto you because you will become a product of that system that you create. And so he's talking again, he says, this is a call against judgment by your own standards. This is not about judging by your own standards, because as believers, we're judged by what? When we stand before God, what are we as believers judged by? We're judged by grace. That's, that's what the whole justification by grace through faith alone. When we stand before God and come under his judgment, God says, you're not guilty anymore because all the sins that you did, I put on my son. And so my standard of judgment to you is grace. So guess what? If my standard of judgment to you is grace, maybe you ought to give grace to others. And so then we get to verse 3. Verse 3, Jesus does, again, another extreme example. What did we hear earlier about talking about money and possessions? We talked about also talking about lust, and, and we was like, gouge your eye out, cut your hand off. Well, again, here's another extreme one. This, imagine, you know, a plank in your eye, and he's, it's it purposely extreme. But it's the extreme example of an unfair critical attitude coupled with a severe lack of self-examination. I am totally adept at picking you out, but I won't even possibly think about going any deep with me. And so part of this is this person that he's talking about, it's, this is a self who is blinded by selfish sin. And he says, listen, if that's you, you shouldn't be going around pointing out the sins and faults of others. Five, he tries to then give you some help. He wants to give you some help on what to do. And so he says in verses four and five, give yourself true, deep, spirit-led examination. True, deep, spirit-led examination. And, and that's key because we love to give ourselves self-examination, but we go about that deep. Or we love to give because self-examination, but we do it when we're combination, but we go about that deep. Or we love to give ourselves self-examination, but we do it when we're comparing ourselves to one another. But if we go and we see what the Lord says about the Holy Spirit and John, and we see that he is always with us, never leaving us, and he guides us into all truth, if we ask the Holy Spirit, see, help me look inside at what's going on. And the, the parallel that what we'd be talking about if we're looking at a set of people right now is if you were to look at the Pharisees, The Pharisees would go around judging other people's sin to make themselves look good, right? 
We know that. We, if we can maximize your sin, it helps us minimize our own sin. But Jesus says, that's not how it works. You do some self-judgment and self-spirit-led examination so you can go to your brother or sister in Christ and help them look good. See, the Pharisees judged others to make themselves look good. Jesus says, judge yourself so that you can help someone else look good. And we're going to talk about that and unpack it a little bit more. And then he also calls him a hypocrite. Jesus, that seems pretty judgmental. This is the whole thing we've been talking about, not judging, and then you call somebody a hypocrite. Jesus, what gives? We're going to talk about that too. But imagine if you tried to put yourself in the position of God and judge someone else. I think Jesus has a right to call you a hypocrite. So in in verse 6 then, again, we've heard in verse 1, don't judge lest you be judged. And then Jesus turns around and says, there are people out in this world that are dogs and pigs. Don't give your good stuff to them. Jesus, that seems pretty judgmental. He's given us a little bit of a, a more rounded picture of what judging looks like in this. And so who are the swine and who are the dogs? We've got to kind of make some judgments to figure that out, correct? But so, so this whole passage is not about never judging. It's about when you judge, judge by God's standards and judge correctly and compassionately. And if we look at Jesus, Jesus does this. Jesus doesn't have a script that he whips out on everybody. Jesus doesn't have this like three-point PowerPoint that he shoves in your face when you're doing something wrong or when you don't get it or when you're at fault. When you look at John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, Jesus doesn't just go, he, he, does, he, goes, he does say, you're a respected teacher, do you not know this? And then he doesn't just say, you're stupid, go away. He says, you must be born again. Well, he needs something different in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, there's a woman who is sleeping with multiple men, and Jesus comes to her and meets her in the middle of the day and talks to her about living water. And then in John chapter 7, Jesus' family shows up to publicly mock him, saying, oh, you're the son of God. Why don't you go up to the festival in Jerusalem? And Jesus doesn't return the mocking. Jesus doesn't say, listen, you know, you know. he just says, no, my time hasn't come yet. And he had all the right in the world to, to call them down. But he doesn't. He doesn't cast his pearls before swine. He doesn't just, he knows the right time and the right opportunity. So let's look at what this looks like practically. So I'll ask you this question. Does Jesus have a problem explaining judgment or do we have a problem understanding it? It's the latter, by the way. Jesus doesn't have a problem. We just have a problem understanding it. And so the first thing is this. The throne of God Almighty is already occupied. That is not a position that is up for election or self-appointment. That job has already been taken. The throne of God is already occupied by God himself. And so when you and I have this unfair, critical, judging attitude, and we neglect at all any kind of meaningful, spirit-led, deep look at our own self, the plank removal of our own eye, we're essentially trying to play God and avoid our problem with his lordship, and that is the source of our unfair, critical heart. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, you know this. Genesis chapter 3 is the invitation by Satan for people to indulge in Satan's favorite sin, which is trying to be God. If you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be open and you will know things just like God and he doesn't want that, but you should do it. Well, that's the same where this judgmental, unfair, critical attitude comes from. And so Satan invites you in this to so devalue God, to bring him down to your level, that you think that you could be him, and also to so overestimate yourself to think that you could handle being God. That's why, that's why we think Bruce Almighty and Evan Almighty is so funny, because we see what happens to them when they think they can play God, and God's like, okay. And then this, that's not even close. But we get it, but it's to so devalue God as to bring him down on our level, and it's to so overestimate ourselves to feel like we could handle what God does. 
And so when we get to verse 5, and Jesus is so harsh, and he says this word with an exclamation point, which means it is an accusation, and he says, hypocrite. And you go, good gracious, Jesus, you just went all hardcore on me. Well, imagine again what Jesus is saying is, if you are judging against these people without doing any kind of self-introspection about who you are and what your own sins are in your own life, that means you are pretending to be God full of sin, which is blasphemy. So he has every right in the world to call us hypocrites when we do this. So when we have an unfair critical attitude, here's what that also looks like. When you meet people that are judgmental and meet other Christians that are judgmental, you will notice, and this may be you and it may be me, when they tell stories, they're always one of two people in their stories. They're either the victim or the hero. People with judgmental, unfair, critical attitudes with no self-examination and no self-judgment, they are either the victim or they're the hero in their stories. They are never, ever, ever going to admit that they are actually the enemy the, the bad guy in the story, the nefarious one in the story, and they would never admit that they were the cause of pain or they were the cause of the situation or they were the ones that wrecked it because they can't do it. People that have this kind of attitude are unable to look at someone else and say what my granddad used to say all the time, which is this wonderful phrase, there but by the grace of God go I. We feel better about our sin because we enjoy maximizing sin in other people's lives and minimizing ours. And at the root of it, we enjoy seeing other people's failures. So when we try to sit in God's place, we put ourselves above the law. Yet, if we would follow verse 5 and we confess our own sin, so we come before the Lord and we look deeply with spirit-led conviction into our own lives at our own sin, and we even pray, as David says, and I love this verse in Psalm 139, search my heart, know my thoughts, see is there any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If we were to do that in an, in an intimate way with the Holy Spirit, and he brings us out and shows us this sin and shows us the log in our own eye, and we confess it. We are not met with just this slamming judgment, but we are met with this tender mercy that will blow our minds. This tender mercy, this, I know, I know. And guess what? I gave you my Holy Spirit not to leave you, but to stay with you and to be with you and to help you. He's the counselor. He will lead you onto all truth. He's with you. I'm there with you. Please, Find this mercy and take it in. Find this mercy and take it in. But when we try to instead do, do this on our own and judge other people, we end up making a mockery of God's judgment. We, we fully want, want to receive God's grace, but we won't give it to someone else. I had, uh, I'm going to call out this book because I think there was wonderful stuff in it. But I had just read a book called Wild at Heart. Anybody read that book? It's been about 20 years ago. And there was a pastor in another church in my other life, this is in like 1999, 98, that had just treated me terribly, called me out, done things in a church that were, you know, kind of these things that you never want to ever go to a church again because these things happen. And these things happened to me. And this guy got still was in the kind of position of the church. And then he got moved into this like, you know, really great leadership position in, in the actual conference of all these churches. And he was, I had just had awful dealings with him awful public dealings with him. He had done the same thing to other people as well. And after reading Wild at Heart, I began to be so inflated about how it was my job to confront him and as a man, put him in his place. And it just so happened that I was going to go up to Richmond to lead a retreat. And I was like, the day is here, shopping cart. And I'm in, I'm, I'm, I don't even have a cell phone at this point. I think this is like 2004 or something. 
Still, I'm still angry about what this guy's done to me. I'm still angry. And I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, yeah, that guy's working at this office. And I'm like, he is? And I began to have visions in my mind. You know, and then my visions, like, you know, I don't even knock on the door. He's sitting at his desk, and the door just kind of opens, and there's smoke behind me. And I have, like, a long trench coat on, and you don't even know what's underneath it. I mean, it could, I could have, like, baseball bats or all kinds of armaments. And then before he can even say anything, I'm just standing on his desk, like looking down at him like the Punisher or something, and then he's going to just, yeah, I'm so terrible, and you're right, and, and, and praise the Lord, he wasn't in his office. I called over there, and he wasn't there. That was the grace of God, by the way. And you know what? I left frustrated. I drove home, and I was like, man, bide my time to get him again. But in that critical, unfairly critical mindset, in that refusal to look inside myself, you don't think that I have been the cause of people's pain? You don't think that I have? I'll be so blind to go, I'm always the victim and always the hero and never the bad guy. And it, was, it wasn't even that day. It was weeks later that I was kind of like, again, Jesus just kind of sweetly came beside me and just kind of, inside first. Second thing is this. You cannot come alongside someone from above. You can't come alongside someone from above them. Jesus did this the best. This is why, this is why Philippians chapter 2 is one of my pivotal parts of, the, of Scripture because Christ became nothing. God to man is to become nothing and then walked among us. And he didn't relate to us from above us. He came and took over Joseph's carpentry business when his father died. He didn't start his public ministry until he was 30. That was a lot of taking out the trash. You know, that was a lot of like helping Mary cook. That was a lot of like working. He was not above. He came and came alongside. And the only way that you're ever going to be able to see clearly to help someone else is not to do it from above, but to come alongside them. Verse 3 in this text is intentionally extreme to show how blindness works. What you think about this, it's very ironic because if you're a judgmental person, you think you're actually the only person that really sees what's going on. Look, look, you don't know what's going on, but I can see it. We all can see it, by the way. You got this problem. God bless you. You In the South, we do it more politely. Bless your heart. By the way, if you're not from the South, that means you idiot. <laughs> but even if we try to be polite, we're trying to have this above you, and you can't come alongside someone to help. And, and our blindness, we're saying, Look, nobody else really sees this but me. But, but I want to ask you this. If we are willing to do some plank removal, some plank removal out of our own eyes, we will find that several things that are there that will help us help someone. Because what is this text about? It's, this is a text about helping someone. This is a text about someone who is at fault and you not judging them but helping them. You're not judging them but helping them. So if we're willing to do a little bit of prank removal, plank removal, first, we're going to find that we're met by God's grace. We're met by grace from our Heavenly Father. I love in 1 John, I'm going to read it to you, 1 John 1, 8, 2 through 2, through 2, 2, says this. If we say we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth. 
But if we confess our sin, that means come and start removing the plank. If we confess our sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from every wrong. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar, being hypocritical, and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if you do sin, there is someone to plead for you before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who pleases God completely. He is the sacrifice for our sins. He takes away not only our sins, but the sins of the world. So the first thing, if we're willing to do a little plank removal, we'll find that we are, we'll find that we are met with grace. The second thing, if we're willing to do a little plank removal on our own eyes, we will see that we are capable in the flesh of the same sin that has been sinned against us with. We're capable in the flesh. And, and I love that 1 John 1.8 essentially says this, if we say we have no sin, we're only refusing, only fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth. We are capable. When we say there but by the grace of God go I, that not just means the person, doesn't just mean the person that's down on their luck, that means the person that is in sin. So the personal example this past week, I got the text that incredible pastor, James McDonald, had been fired by his church. Shocked. And part of me was like, they didn't get me yet. But the other part of me is is like, there but by the grace of God go I. That could be me. That totally could be me. I can't come over him, and I never will be able to come alongside him, but I would want to come alongside him and go, that could have been me just as well as it was you. Third thing about this, if we're willing to do a little bit of plank removal, we will be met in confession, not only with forgiveness, but with help and guidance. We will be met in our confession with help and guidance. And John 14, 6 says this, I've got to leave you, and you're sad, but it's a good thing because I'm going to leave with you the counselor, the Holy Spirit, and he will not leave you. So God's not leaving this up to you. He is leaving himself with you in it. And fourthly, If we're willing to do some plank removal, we will see that God deals with us personally on our issues. He doesn't have a script and he doesn't have a corporate policy. He will deal with you personally. And I go back to that again, John 3, John 4, and John 7. Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and his own family. He reads, and you will also find that when you come into individuals' lives, you don't just have the script that you read to them about, all right, you're stuck in sin, I've seen you before. Let me tell you my 10-step plan for you to never be stuck in sin ever again. Here we go. And A, stop sinning. Actually, I was just kidding. There was only one step in my 10-step plan. It's just stop sinning. And the rest of them are all the same. Kidding. There was only one step. Now don't do it anymore. It's just stop sinning. And the rest of them are all the same. You got it? Good. Now don't do it anymore. Is that what Jesus does? So all of these things, if you're willing to do them, they will take away and they will soften the heart of a condemner and they will instead give you the heart of a helper rather than a judge. When someone in the wrong or someone who sins against us, we approach them with this first plank removal, and then what does it look like? Let me tell you what it looks like. Now, I want to give you a story. There's a godly woman that goes to our church. She's incredible, and she's had an impact on so many different lives. And this godly woman was friends with someone else. And these people had different children, and for whatever reason, they treated one of their children differently. And this child was kind of the child that just kind of wouldn't get the attention and and received more of the correction and more of the unfairness. And people could see it, but they couldn't see it. And people could see what was going on, and people even talked about it, but no one would go and talk to him. 
And she came and talked to me. Why? Because she's way wiser than me. She didn't need any advice from me. Way wiser than me. And she's like, I've got to tell them. And she wasn't like this, I've got to go tell them. It was kind of like this, you know how serious what I'm getting ready to say is? And it is so serious and it's so deep and I feel so unworthy. I mean, I feel so unworthy to do this. And you know what it looked like when she did it? She got a time where she was able to be away with this other parent. And they sat in a chair and she got on her knees in front of this, in front of this person and with tears in her eyes said, I know you probably don't see this. I know that you may not see this. But can I tell you, can I just share with you what I'm seeing? Can I share with you what I'm seeing? I'm telling you this because I love you. And it was in the most tender way that she got down on her knees and that she said, there but by the grace of God go I. When I confess my sins, I am met with mercy and tenderness. When I confess my sins, I find out that I'm not just left in them, but the Holy Spirit is there with me. When I confess my sins, I see that Jesus deals with me personally, not just in some corporate way. You can't come alongside someone from above them. And now I'm going to flip the script on you, and this is short, so don't worry. Jesus is saying in this text, when you judge, judge correctly. When you judge, judge correctly and judge compassionately. Verses 5 and 6, I'm pretty sure these are pretty judgmental texts. Like, you know, the non-Christian really loves the judge not lest you be judged, but then they don't read the rest of it where he talks about, hey, when you judge, first take out the plank out of your own eye so you can see what you're doing. Have some self-examination. And then he says this, and don't give pearls to swine or don't give holy things to unholy people. They don't like that and they don't memorize it. Why? Because the first part about just simply not judging is the easiest part. And notice that Jesus doesn't say in this text, you worry about you, never worry about anyone else. He doesn't say that. If you were to go and look up 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13. Well, as a matter of fact, I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13. For some reason, I marked it, and then I like it. Oh, yeah, there it is. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Corinth. Funny, Corinth. Ha <laughs> ha. Okay. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your job to judge those inside the church who are sinning in these ways. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. That actually comes from Deuteronomy 17, 7. It seems pretty judgmental. We're actually called to judge. In verse 5, we're dealing with sin and wrongdoing. Verse 5 tells us in this text, we're dealing with sin and wrongdoing. Get rid of the log in your own eye, get rid of the sin in your own eye, and perhaps you'll be able to deal with the sin or the wrongdoing in someone else's eye. We've also got to realize that one of the best ways to paralyze a church body is to never be able to talk about sin or call out sin because we couch it in you're being judgmental. We never can talk about sin. We never can bring up sin. We never can even ask about sin because it can always be jumped down or shouted down by you're being judgmental. Do you want to know why we at church, in church, I'm not saying the big church, you know why we have such a cavalier attitude about divorce? Because we don't deal with it. You don't talk about it. It's not a big deal. Don't talk about it. You're being judgmental. So we don't, and we just accept it. How did the church get to where we are in sexuality these days? Why? You don't talk about that. It's so judgmental. Really? I'm pretty sure the Bible has the same thing to say about sex from cover to cover. One man, one woman in the covenant of marriage, nowhere else. Cover to cover, it says that. But we can't talk about it. We've also got, we just got cavalier about things. We're cavalier about alcohol. We're cavalier about it. You know what? 
It's not accidents that people become alcoholics. They become alcoholics because they abuse it and people see it. And the people go, I don't want to say it. I just, I'm going to come across as judgmental. But it will paralyze a church body. Our language, the language that we use, is it the same as the world? And it's not fun. Guys, I've had people in our church be like, I can't believe you said that. But they said it in a way that I went, it was just loving, and I went, you're right. I'm a child of God, a disciple of God, and a pastor under the name of Jesus Christ. Maybe I shouldn't have a cavalier way about the words I use. God's still working on me in that because I'm stupid. Jesus never says, don't help your friend with the speck, only worry about you. But instead, he says, you do both. And I would get into that by saying, hate sin in your own life first. Hate sin in your own life, but also hate what it does to the people that you love. And hate what it does enough to not come up from above them, but to come alongside them in a way, maybe even with tears in your own eyes, to plead with them the way Christ pleads with us, that we would take his hand and walk. I'll say this one more time for the cheap seats. I love this thing, and it comes back to me again and again. When we confess our sins, and First John says this, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Confess our sins. And if you are met with mercy when you confess, then instead of just being a sponge of mercy, let's work on being vessels of mercy and take it to those that we're called to come alongside and help. Let me pray, and we're going to end up with one quick more praise song. And I love you guys. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that you have paid for our sins and our debt once and for all on the cross. And Jesus, I pray that we would be vessels of grace and mercy, Lord God. We are absolutely, completely guilty of having an unfair critical attitude about everyone else except for ourselves. And Lord God, we're not calling ourselves to self-flagellate ourselves, Lord, but to just have a genuine look led by you and to then be encountered with mercy and grace. Lord God, teach us to be plank removers out of our own eyes. God, it'll give us so much perspective. And Lord, we pray that we would also just not be cavalier about sin. And that we would be paralyzed by not being willing to come alongside someone and speak in love words of truth. And to know the right way to do that and the right time to do that, just the way you did in Scripture, from individual to individual. And so Lord, we're so blessed by you and we thank you so much by your mercy and for your mercy and your grace and for the blood that you shed that allows us to sing and worship and boast about you and who you are. It's in your awesome name we pray, Jesus. Amen.